Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please rise for the uh, reading of the word. We're going to be reading from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. We'll be focusing on verses 9, 9 through 11. James chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and his flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of its pursuits will fade away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, Before I begin, I'd like to just a brief personal word about myself. This, uh, this particular passage, particularly verses 9 through 11, has been a constant companion through this past year. I first started preparing this sermon back in February, uh, expecting to preach it much earlier than October, and that didn't happen for a variety of reasons, and then pulled it back out again in June, and hoping to preach it in August. That didn't happen either. Um, so now, so now, I am, so now uh, the Apostle James and I are back together again, wrestling through uh, these passages together. It's been a constant goad, a constant, each time I've approached it, I have to admit, I've been looking for some secret wisdom to, to uh, turn the tables on the passage, to uh, bring about, find, to find some hidden trick or technique or spiritual backdoor to financial prosperity in this life has been where my heart has been. And uh, in my wisdom, there is none to be found. These clear words speak to us whatever our circumstances, rich or poor, whether we're enjoying prosperity, financial prosperity or lack. And so if you're coming here hoping for prosperity gospel or hoping to turn things around in, that, turn things around in such a superficial way, you will be disappointed. Uh, instead, the Lord has a word. Instead, however, there's a word from the Lord that everyone needs to hear. And I uh, just appreciate your prayers. I seek to bring it. So I did preach, so I started on James last October, and you'll remember I gave a little, actually you probably won't remember. I remember very clearly that it was a lot of historical context that we started out with. Remember that this is a general epistle, so it's written to the church, it's written to a very broad section of the church, not a particular church, but meant to be read and thumbed through and notated and then passed on to the next body to read. He's... um, is likely to be one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament and thought like and probably written by James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And James is speaking to his brethren living in difficult circumstances. Many of his fellow Jews have been scattered uh, about Asia Minor by the wars over the past 500 years, including the ongoing war with Rome. 
And many of those that have converted to Christianity have been driven out of Jerusalem by their own brethren as well, according to the flesh. In the midst of this adversity, James calls his brothers by blood and covenant to earnest Christian living, especially within the household of faith. That's where his emphasis and priority is this morning. And let's, uh, let's start right there as we think about application, how this applies to us. He's talking about living like Christians in the midst of a difficult world. Children, why does it matter? I'm talking to all the kids out there. Why does it matter that we live like Christians? Uh, you've heard from your parents that you're a sinner, that you're, fall- that you're fallen from the purpose God intended for you, and that the only hope of salvation and that the only hope of salvation is to love Jesus. You can't be good enough to please God, right? There is no hope for that. So why? So where does James coming from? Is he pulling back? Is he telling us we need to work our way into God's good grace? If you've ever wrestled with this apparent conundrum, remember Paul's helpful summary in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, just turn there if you would. It's always, it's always a helpful reminder uh, as we as we wrestle in with um, living faithfully before the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 reads, very famous passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so that's the foundation of all our hopes, that the, gift, the free gift of God through the Lord Jesus. But, he doesn't, uh, but Paul doesn't end there. He goes on to say, Not as a result of works, that no one should boast, so we're never going to work hard enough to be pleasing, um, for, but we are created his, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you can think about that where Paul leaves off here in Ephesians, James picks up, talking about that good work that we have been created for, that we should walk in it. That's the purpose that we've been saved for, not because anything we do is perfect, but because all we do is now committed to Christ and our labors now reflect him. With that consideration, James turns with his characteristic directness to a consideration of money and the distinctions it makes between us. Now, um, none of us have had to worry about money or any kind of financial uncertainty in the year of our Lord 2020. It's been a very smooth ride from January to here, right? It's been anything but. And so note the context that James is writing in that we just referred to. It's not unlike our own. God's people are dispersed. They're facing uncertain times, seeking the right way forward. And in the midst of that, James just finished warning, warning against weakness of faith. He's made it very clear we should welcome struggles in this life. We should welcome those struggles to increase the faith that we've been given, that our salvation, is, is, uh, that our salvation comes to us through. We should come and ask the Lord for what is needed, but we should do it in faith with no doubting as he... As he uh, finish his exhortation before the verses we're considering. Now, we all know that should be true, but it's not. In the midst of our struggles, we struggle to have any faith at all, to rely on God as we should. When we're looking at a dwindling bank account, depleted investment funds, trying to figure out how we're going to put braces on kids' teeth or keep the car on the road, we know we should cast our cares on the Lord, but we don't. We hold on to them. We, we brood on them. We lie awake at night thinking about them. Instead, we, make, we figure it's all on us. We've got to do it. When, what do we do? And when we get really frustrated with that, what do we start to do? We start to look at others. We start to distract ourselves from our own misery and turn it, and turn it into contempt instead. 
because our sinful mind doesn't like distinctions. We don't like to see differences, particularly when they're, they're to our disadvantage. Distinctions, gradations, hierarchy, differences, these are all parts of God's design. But in our fallen state, we resent them and latch onto them as grounds for resentment. We envy those who have more than us, compiling reasons why they don't deserve it, thereby finding, rooms for, finding grounds for complaining. We despise those who have less, conflating reduced means with poor character, thereby boosting our own esteem of ourselves. There's a lot of wisdom here, isn't there? When you start to talk about money, you have to talk about people. Uh, and James makes this explicit. He'll go on to make this more explicit in the beginning of, of uh, chapter 2. Look down ahead in your Bibles to the beginning of James chapter 2. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay, attention, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Rather than envying and resenting each other, James calls upon us to love and be thankful. Let the humble rejoice. Going back to verse, uh, verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the humble rejoice that his riches are in Christ, and in Christ he is called brother. Let the rich rejoice, not so much in the providence that has given him wealth, but in the grace which keeps him humble. Matthew Henry, writing about this, says, It is expected from those who have wealth and estates that they be rich in good works, uh, like, he, like James admonished everyone to in the beginning of this chapter, that they be rich in good works, because the more they have, the more they have to do good with. But it is expected from the poor in the world that they be rich in faith, for the less they have here, the more they may, and should live in believing expectation of better things in a better world. So in whatever state God has called us to, he will give us the grace we need. The lowly brother can look ahead with hope to his exaltation in Christ. The rich knows his wealth will not save him or endure, but that Christ will. Both are conscious of the transience that Job expresses that we've read recently in Job chapter 14. Listen to, just listen to this, you know, listen to the imagery that Job gives here. He says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and wither and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. Like James, like James, Job highlights the rapid passing of man and the work of his hands, using very similar flower and grass imagery in the Old Testament that James would use in the New. It's very likely that James may have had, may have had some of Job's words in his mind as he was writing his own book. All men are transient and temporary and fade away in this life. So too the work of their hands. It's vapor of vapors, all of vapor like we just heard in the Sunday school this morning. In this regard, rich and poor are alike. 
They and their works are as transient as grass. The acquisition and use of wealth fills the majority of our waking hours, and the scripture's corrective is necessary to restore its rightful place in our hearts. I mean, you're mindful of that every week, right? Most of you, the majority of you this past week, were working a job or, you know, or, or using that wealth to keep your household going. That's, the what, that's what most of our lives are filled with right now. We have to have sermons on, on meditation, on reading our Bibles, on, making sure, on having time to pray because we're so busy getting the wealth, that's, you know, getting the wealth that we need uh, to survive in order to, in order to ha- um, or survive that we have very little time for anything else. It's what we worry about. It's what we brood upon. Compared to the, but in compared to the inestimable gift of salvation in Christ, a free gift we neither earn nor improve, wealth, status, money, assets, possession are as nothing. And that's where James begins reminding us of that. The very nations and all they contain are just as a drop in the bucket in comparison. As a result, James wants us to know that the poor man may and should bear their absence, bear the absence of financial prosperity. Uh, he, might, he may bear with it. He enjoys the riches of grace now, right now. Looks ahead to the perfection of glorification and rests in the knowledge that even his privations shall be sanctified, um, shall be sanctified uh, through, in the perfection of glorification. The rich man looks forward to the same, holding the treasures of this life lightly, using them to store up enduring wealth in the life to come. And it'd be very tempting uh, if I wanted to keep this sermon short. I could stop right there, couldn't I? It's all glorious and true. It's all much probably what you all have heard before and expect me to say this morning. (laughs) Um, Of course we're supposed to be content with our lot. To avoid jealousy, to work diligently, and leave the results up to God. We know that already, but it's also hard, isn't it? I've struggled to bear it as I've wrestled through with this passage all year long. I mean, does anyone want to really rejoice in lack of privation? Has anyone had to do without or wondered how they're going to get by with what they have and been glad for it? Has anyone really welcomed that? Does anyone want... Does anyone, does anyone who's enjoyed possessions, enjoyed the leisure and the ease that it brings, has anyone wanted to rejoice in the transience of that wealth? Who's everyone look at and say, yeah, this isn't going to last. It's going to go. I mean, we feel, like, we feel like we're in the first chapter, of, living the first chapter of Ecclesiastes all over again through James's words here. Whatever you have, don't set your heart on it. Don't even count on it. It's not going to be there. It's going to let you down. Because rejoicing, because theoretically rejoicing in humble circumstances, that seems well and good on a sunny Sunday morning. That's kind of what we're supposed to do here. But Monday comes tomorrow, and what's going to be there when we're pondering the household budget again? Or the lack of it? Thinking about that, I've been tempted to preach selectively from Ecclesiastes this morning and kind of cherry-pick my way through certain passages. We'll get to Ecclesiastes 7 here in a few weeks, which, open, which, uh, says, which says in verse 11, Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good, and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its predecessors. 
Talking about wisdom followed by talking about wealth. There really is nothing new under the sun. Solomon was concerned about it, just like James hundreds of years later. But, I mean, isn't it easy to identify with the latter half of that passage, however? Wisdom, all well and good. But, you know, don't you look at Solomon sometimes and think, well, he had it easy just because he had, he had money. He had the freedom to set back, to explore, to think, to ponder. Because money is protection, and he didn't live with the fear and uncertainty that the lack of it brings, Right? He says also in Ecclesiastes 10.19, Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Andrew actually shared that with me a month, uh, like four months ago, and uh, we both just kind of went, wow. Did, you know, nobody even thinks that's... If you ask anybody, nobody would say that's in the Bible. Money is the answer to everything, right? We don't usually speak, such, we don't usually speak in such a way of wealth in the church, but we all believe it, don't we? Money may not make you happy, but the lack of it can make you miserable. With enough in the bank, we find it easier to rest at night. We can face the uncertain future with more confidence. That's where we want to put our hearts. We're more, we feel more in control when we've got the money. Able to anticipate and make a way for ourselves with the wealth required to summon others to our assistance. It's wealth that gives us time off to rest and reflect. It's wealth that feeds our children. It's wealth that gives us enough to share with others and keeps the doors of this church open. And so before you know it, rich or poor, plenty or lack, you find yourself worshiping the stuff of this world. Like Ecclesiastes points out, money is central to this life. There's no avoiding this struggle. Which makes it all the, more, all the easier to set up money as your God. And how do you know when, and let me stop right there. It's easy to make money your God. And none of us want to sit here, and none of us want to sit here and put ourselves in that category. Um, I don't. I've struggled with money this year. Others of you have as well. We want to, we want to pat ourselves on the back for perseverance, for thrift, for, uh, for living within our means, you know, for, you know, for having enough we don't have to worry about it. We want to say, well, this, is, this sermon's for somebody else. <laughs> um, I can tell you this sermon, you know, this is a sermon I'm preaching to myself first. Because it, whether you have a lot or a little, you're going to, you're going to be preoccupied with it. And, how, and so here's the test. How do you know when money has become your God? It's when you look, it's when you start treating people differently because of their stuff. When you start viewing yourself through your solvency. So look again, at, look again at James chapter 2, which I think is so helpful as we consider this, these verses in James chapter 1. He says that if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Because what is the base, when we start making these prejudiced distinctions between rich and poor, what is it, what is it we're admitting? Ultimately, we're admitting that what they, it's not just what they wear and what they have, it's how much they're worth that really determines how much they're worth in our eyes. So have you ever done that? Sisters, have you ever resented your lot in life when viewing someone else's house or 
or someone else's car or, some, or the education that they can provide for their children? Have you ever wanted opportunities for yourself and your family that money can bring and that others have? Have you ever gone to bed at night feeling unsafe because of debt or a lack of money and the protection it brings? Brothers, I ask you the same questions. Have you ever, and in addition, I would also ask you, have you ever despised yourself because you can't provide, because you feel like you can't provide or generate the amount of revenue you would like that is expected of you? You begin to think your life is cursed or worthless because it doesn't come with the six figures you prefer or even the high five figures that you, that you think would be the bare minimum. You know God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and provides for us, his people, for his own but not for you. You feel like you missed out somewhere along the way. We're all good Reformed Presbyterians. We're all going to confess God's sovereignty uh, if asked, but we are starting to wonder a little bit about his goodness sometimes. When we get to Friday and the money's not quite there, money's quite not there, and the plans for the weekend are all shot because of it. If that describes you this morning, and if it doesn't describe you, look harder. (laughs) It does at some level. And if so, it's time to pray. It's time to get your eyes off of yourself this morning and turn your eyes to the Lord. If you're unable to prosper in humble circumstances or be humble in the midst of prosperity, go to him with your wealth, your poverty, and pray over this passage from Proverbs. And uh, flip with me to Proverbs chapter 30. I think this should be the prayer of everyone when you consider investments, when you consider your budget, when you consider when you outlay any amount of money, or or you know or or look to achieve it. He says in verse eight, Proverbs thirty, verse eight: "Keep deception and lies far from me." That's actually a good start right there. Whenever you want, whenever you consider money, you want the honest you want the honest assessment of where you're at, what you have, what you need to spend. And he says, he goes on to say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I think this passage is very helpful because it removes envy and pride from consideration of wealth. And the only, and the only thing that's left is, use, is our usefulness to the Lord. With a few short words, the writer here sweeps away all such self-absorption leaves each man alone before God with his possessions. And he prays as we should pray, give me only, give me only what I give me only what I need for your glory. When I can handle it. So in Christ, so thinking back in our passage in James, in Christ the poor man does enjoy the incomparable riches of salvation and the life to come. While the rich man enjoys the same but by comparison, he will see the riches of this life pale and wither, uh, pale and wither. In our sin, we would seek to define ourselves by our circumstances instead of the name we've been given to bear, that name above every name. So again, so if you have nothing, you have everything to glory and delight in through Christ. If you have, if you have many, if you have lots of the stuff of this world, you have the same grounds rejoicing. But you will have to be willing to recognize that what you have in this life will, be, will come as nothing in your sight. 
those of, those of you men who were at our last Triple B, uh, who've been reading through the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, you'll remember that one of, Burrow, one of Jeremiah Burroughs' main, uh, main points in that book, one of the things that he keeps pushing upon us, is that contentment is not, is not a certain level of, uh, of affluence or a certain amount of possessions that we achieve, and then we're like, okay, we're good. I'm good now. I've got everything I really want. I can be content. If we're trying to reach that, if we're trying to attain that, we'll never reach it. And instead, what he, he says is we should, instead of trying to gain more, or looking to gain just enough, we should be looking to lose something. You all remember this? We're to be losing desires. We're to be losing, we're to be laying aside the desires that he brings, uh, that, that we pile up, that the world forces upon us, that our own hearts generate. We're to be saying, I don't need what I thought, once thought I need because I have Christ and he is not only enough, he is more than enough. He is endless wealth and prosperity for, for eternity. And so, you know, I don't need that thing I once thought I did. I could get by with a little less. To bring this back to, I'll end with uh, one more word from Ecclesiastes. He, um, Solomon the king, proclaims a curse upon, upon other kings. And upon him, indeed, looking back on his own life, I think probably upon his, life, his own life, he says, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time, for strength and not for drunkenness. I'm reminded also of, I'm reminded also of Jesus' words when he admonishes not to worry, not to fear. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we put on? He says, for, you know, he says, for, for this is what the Gentiles worry about, and your Father in heaven knows that you need them. So this is not a call to asceticism. This is not a call to, you know, this is not a call to give up all worldly possessions and, you know, and, live, in, and uh, live with absolutely nothing of our own volition. This is a reminder to work, to labor, to know that our Heavenly Father knows our needs better than we do and that he will always provide them. Um, and then in the midst of it, to rejoice in everything that he gives. Because everything that we receive is specially planned out and custom tailor-made for us, for our lives. And it's hard to remember that when, it's hard to remember that when the paychecks don't come as regularly as you'd like them to, or they aren't as big as they are, as you'd like them to, or you've seen the wealth achieved and you've, lo and you've lost it in fluctuations of the stock market or, or, or uncertainty. But even those circumstances where, one, where the Lord seems to be taken away in one area, He's building you up and giving you something more in, quite, in another. And he wants you to trust and rely upon him all, all the more closely because of it. So pray to be like the kings and princes who show true nobility, who has enough, who recognize that you have enough, and use whatever you have for strength to labor and to serve others this morning. Amen.